Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. Two in five migrant laborers returning home fail to find work because they lack skills and, within five years, leave for jobs outside of their respective home provinces, researchers from the Chinese Academy of Sciences found. A study by the government-backed think tank sheds light on why China's army of migrant workers, more than 277 million at last count, is in constant flux, with many choosing to move back to their home villages at some point and then leave again. The finding appears to bode ill for government efforts to encourage rural farmers to remain in their villages or find jobs in places close to their homes to address overcrowding and pollution in large cities. In Beijing, five tour guides were sentenced up to a year in prison for forcing clients to cough up more money than what was agreed upon halfway through their trips. The one-day tour packages were as cheap as 40 yuan, but a viral video clip last year showed one of the sentenced guides slapping a tourist inside a tour bus after 10 tourists were intimidated into paying an additional 1,720 yuan each. China Construction Bank has restored the credit limits on some credit cards belonging to employees of Le Echo after unilaterally cutting the limits to 1 yuan, or 15 cents, while it conducted credit risk assessments on the cardholders. CCB is the latest financial institution that has grown more vigilant toward the cash-strapped technology company. China Merchants Bank received approval from a Shanghai court in June to freeze Le Echo assets that were pledged as collateral in 2015 for a 2.4 billion yuan loan. China's largest peer-to-peer lending platform, Hongling Capital, plans to get out of the online lending business within three years, citing a poor track record of people repaying loans. Analysts said that the decision marks the end of big P2P deals. The company said 800 million yuan, or 118 million U.S. dollars, in loans will not be paid back by borrowers. Alibaba has found that internal theft is now the top cause of consumer data leakage in China, the world's largest e-commerce market. China's two largest e-commerce firms, Alibaba and JD.com, both experienced data theft last year. With 99 million records stolen, Alibaba's case was the second largest breach worldwide. Nearly half of the incidents were caused by internal theft, meaning an employee of the company. 
A typical scenario involves an organized group sending a member to get a job in an online merchant, often in a bustling city. After the operative gets access to the shop's customer database, he downloads the data and vanishes from the company. Others in the group then begin to telephone buyers for fraudulent purposes. Senior employees have even become undercover agents, Alibaba found, forming long-term cooperation with data thieves and voluntarily leaking information in exchange for compensation. This long-term approach works in part because the market for buying and selling merchant and customer data is relatively mature. Let's turn now to Doug Young, senior editor at Caixin Global, to talk about one of the biggest items in this week's news. Doug, what do you have for us today? So today we're going to take a look at Hainan Airlines. Actually, it's called HNA. This is a very big Chinese company that has become very acquisitive, or I shouldn't say become. It's been very acquisitive over the last three or four years. They started out, like I said, as an airline, and they're based on Hainan Province, which is famous for its tourism. So a lot of their earliest deals tended to be in the aviation and, and tourism sector. And lately, they've been expanding into all kinds of other sectors as well. They've gotten into technology. They bought a company called Ingram Micro, which is this huge company in the U.S. that distributes computer parts last year for about $6 billion. Last year, they also bought 25% of Hilton, the big hotel company, that was another similar size deal for about $6 billion. So anyhow, this is a very big company. It's become a very big company. It's become one of China's biggest buyers of overseas assets. So that's who HNA is. Caixin has two stories this week on the company. Tell us about those. Right. The first one, I'll go in reverse order just because it's easier to understand. The second of the two stories had a big deal that these guys were doing worth about $460 million collapsed. And this was a purchase they were going to make of an equity stake in a U.S. company that does communications using satellites. They, they basically help to provide uh, services to airplanes while they're in flight. And HNA was going to invest in these guys. And part of the idea was to develop technology because satellites can do a lot with planes traveling these days. And they were going to use this stuff in their Hainan Airlines aircraft. But anyhow, the deal collapsed they announced that the whole thing is officially off, and this was going to be a deal, like I said, that was worth almost $500 million. So it was quite a large deal. Second piece of news actually came a day before, and that one, we saw HNA actually announce its shareholding structure, which, you know, in the U.S. would be no big deal, but this is China. And one of the things that's been happening is there have been a few of these companies like HNA. There's the other big one is called Anbang, the insurance company. And they're very sort of murky, mysterious companies. Nobody really knows where their money comes from. Nobody knows who their big shareholders are and so forth. So HNA has been coming under a bit of criticism lately for all this huge global M&A they're doing now. Some people see it as a little frivolous or not, not necessarily so focused, spending a lot of money. And at the same time, people are criticizing them because nobody knows who they are. So what they did was, in a move to try and dispel some of the mystery, they actually announced their shareholding structure, which, like I said, in the West wouldn't be that big of a deal. But in China, you know, where these companies are very murky, they announced their shareholding structure. And it wasn't anything that major, actually. Their two biggest shareholders were both charitable foundations, one in China and one in the U.S. Then their next two biggest shareholders were two of their co-founders, 
And then after that, most of the shareholders were basically you know, holding like 1% stake, all their various different board directors. So Doug, what's the bigger trend here? The bigger trend is that they're like these half dozen companies that are sort of a bit murky. People don't really know, understand them that well. And they've been going on these really big overseas M&A binges over the last for HNA, it goes all the way back really like five, six years. Some of them are a little more recent, but the backstory is that they've been buying up things left and right. They've been inflating prices and it's finally caught the attention of Beijing. And so Beijing is reportedly telling banks not to help these guys finance their purchases. They're warning, you know, against financial risk and so forth. So the next step that everyone thinks is we're going to start seeing these guys start to sell off some of their assets, uh, try and deleverage a bit. Thanks, Doug, as always. We told you last week about China's chronic flight delay problem and how one of the reasons cited was all these drones near airports. So let's turn to April Ma, a reporter from Caixin Global who covers companies, to talk about how one Chinese city is trying to deal with the problem of drones. April, before we get into the latest news, what's the general picture of the drone or unmanned aerial vehicle scene in China? So China is currently one of the largest international markets for commercial drones. And one of the reasons is that the world's largest drone manufacturers are based in China, such as DJI, Ehong, and now increasingly what's called Zero Tech. So there's this huge appetite for everything from aerial footage to selfies in China. And these things are affordable, and they're also very fun to play with. And also because of the uh, availability of mechanical parts and labor in China, these things are not that expensive to manufacture, especially in the tech hub of Shenzhen. So according to the latest figures, which were from 2015, China owns about 70% of all the world's drones. So this has been the situation since around 2012-2013 when the industry really took off. But lately, the situation has kind of gotten out of hand, especially with the near misses at airports since the beginning of the year in January and also repeatedly in April. So we know of over 100 instances in Chengdu Airport, one of the busiest hubs in the nation. And also there are reports of drones getting in the way of flights in Beijing and Yunnan. I understand from your articles that there's this regulatory problem, the lack of regulation, basically. But I've also read that companies themselves have been installing so-called geofencing technology into the drones, which so if, if the drones get near, say, restricted airspace, it will deflect or even send back to the operator's location the, the offending drone. Is that not working? So yes, you're absolutely right. There is this geofencing technology that most drone makers embed into their aircrafts, but it's not very difficult to get around. So um, a lot of tech-savvy drone flyers, they tamper with the wiring or they wrap some of the sensitive components in foil, and that is able to fool the geofencing technology into thinking that it's nowhere near any of its fences. So that's why you're still able to fly a drone over an airport, a military base, or any other location that these companies have circled off. Okay, so that's the background. So what's the news in your latest story? So first of all, we have to know the background that even though the lawmakers are very proud of the fact that China's drone technology is ahead of the curve, there's still no doubt in their minds that they want flight safety and civil aviation order to come front and center. So what they're doing right now is they're going through this uh, nationwide sweep to check out how serious these wayward drones situation is. And they're planning to, by the end of December, perhaps, 
roll out a set of more comprehensive measures to regulate the industry. And ahead of that, each of the local governments want to take their own preemptive measures so that in case something does go wrong, they can say, look, we had this document on hand and now you have actually violated our rules. It's a kind of self-protection. In Guangzhou, the situation is that the local governments, the police department, has circled off a wide range of public facilities, from schools to parks to even bus stations. So that means you can barely fly a drone anywhere in any of the public spaces in Guangzhou. But how to actually put these measures into action is still a question mark. So what Tyson reporters have found is that even though there's less than a week till these measures are actually put in place, the local police department have no idea how they're going to go about doing that. And they've basically just been kicking the ball to other departments and even saying that that's the responsibility of the Air Force. And you have to apply with the military before you can fly a drone. I've, I've read in one of your previous articles about real name registration, which China uses for all kinds of different regulations. But real name registration for drones, is, is that in place and is it working? Yes, so since June 1st, all drones in the nation have been required to register with the Civil Aviation website under the Civil Aviation Administration. So they're going to put in the user's personal particulars, and then the system comes out with a QR code that you paste onto your drone. And each drone without this QR code would be illegally flying by the end of August. But so far, people are saying that it's also very easy to fool the system. You can put in fake name, fake ID, and the system can't tell. Uh, So we'll see how the situation goes. Well, thanks, April. We will check back with you in a few weeks to see how things are going. Sounds good, Kaiser. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll hear how the tragic deaths of four kindergartners in buses during the recent heat wave in China has triggered a major outcry over the state of schools in rural China. We'll look at a new documentary released with the blessings of Indeed at the behest of the state, a documentary series that features corrupt officials confessing on camera to having taken bribes. We'll tell you how demand is booming for virtual currencies, and not just Bitcoin, but homegrown Chinese digital currencies. And we'll hear why shares of Guizhou Maotai, China's best-known Baijiu distiller, are soaring on a very bullish outlook. From People Deaths of four kindergartners in baking buses triggers outcry over state of rural schools. By Cai Jiaxin, Xu Zhuang, and Li Rongde. Beijing. Two and a half year old Ren Xiangyu was helped onto a school bus by her grandmother just before 8 a.m. on July 12th. Eight hours later, the bus driver found her dead, locked inside the sweltering vehicle as temperatures soared to 42 degrees Celsius, 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Deaths of three other kindergartners or preschoolers under similar circumstances in separate instances in a span of just two weeks, all in northern China's Hebei province, have triggered an outcry nationwide on a lack of oversight of rural kindergartens in China, which serve nearly 70% of all preschoolers in China. Xiangyu's death on July 12th was reported by the Beijing News on Monday. A day after her death, a three-year-old girl was locked for six hours in a school bus operated by a rural kindergarten in Langfang, also in Hebei. When the child was discovered, her body was already stiff. Her face had turned blue and was partially covered in blood, according to the owner of a glass shop across from the kindergarten. It is unclear whether the blood was from bruises as the child struggled to get out. There were two other similar deaths in separate villages in the province from June 28th to July 13th, according to Chinese media reports. Authorities have released little information over the exact cause of deaths. 
but many angry netizens have pinned the blame on negligent teachers. It would never have happened if anyone involved had been a bit more responsible, one internet user said on Weibo, China's version of Twitter. Another netizen said, Was it so difficult for teachers to make a thorough check before locking up the vehicle? Nearly half of all kindergarten teachers in the country teach in a rural classroom, but there is still a severe shortage of rural teachers, experts said. Partly in response to the public outcry, local authorities have moved swiftly, arresting several suspects. This includes the founder of Xiangyu School, the Tianbao Kindergarten. They have also suspended several officials in charge of the school. Many kindergartens in Jingzhou Village and Hebei were also told to close indefinitely pending further investigation. It is unclear how many other schools have been affected. Authorities said only that they had discovered three kindergartens in the area, including Tianbao, had operated without a license for years, and the vehicles used to transport children weren't registered as school buses. China's problematic process for licensing kindergartens may have allowed these institutions to operate for years without being detected, according to Professor Fan Mingli at Hebei University's School of Education. Kindergarten operators can choose to register with one of three government agencies, the Provincial Civil Affairs Bureau, the Industry and Commerce Department, or the Education Authority. But only the Education Authority is charged with monitoring schools, and the lack of coordination between the three licensing bodies has led to problems, said Pang Lijuan, a professor at Beijing Normal University. Only the Education Authority is tasked with oversight, but doesn't necessarily know about schools that have been licensed by the other two agencies, she said. The deaths also put the spotlight on a host of other ills plaguing rural kindergartens in the country. Kindergartens, mostly privately owned, operate on shoestring budgets, Pong said. That's because, unlike schools offering classes from grades 1 through 9 that get guaranteed funding under the country's compulsory education law, kindergartens, particularly those in impoverished areas, are administered by township governments and have access to very little public funding, she added. The demand for kindergartens in villages has also soared in the past two decades as many young parents leave to work in cities, said Song Yingquan, an associate professor at Peking University. But estimates show that 16 million rural children between the ages of 3 and 6, mostly from rural China, have no schools to go to, Song said. From People, Beijing. Five senior Communist Party officials caught in the anti-graft net appeared on state TV to reflect on their misdeeds or crimes in the latest installment of a documentary airing on major TV networks across the country. The 10-episode documentary, entitled Carrying on the Reform to the End, was co-produced by the publicity department of the party's main decision-making body, the Central Committee and showcases the party's efforts to keep its rank and file from being lured into corruption. The documentary premiered on China Central Television and all satellite channels on regional TV networks throughout the country on July 17th, just months ahead of the 19th National Congress of the Communist Party, slated for late October or early November. This key meeting will set China's political agenda for the next five years. In the latest episode of the dramatic documentary, which aired Tuesday, five former senior party officials, including former Liaoning party chief Wang Min, went on camera to reflect on their downfalls. It's unclear whether or not the officials agreed to go on camera to get more lenient sentences. 
Wang, former party secretary of the Rust Belt province in the country's northeast, went on trial on July 21st in Luoyang, in central China's Henan province. He was accused of embezzling and taking bribes worth 146 million yuan, or 21.57 million U.S. dollars. He was also charged with dereliction of duty, linked to a vote-rigging scandal in Liaoning, where over 80% of the provincial legislature was found to have paid bribes to get elected, including 45 members chosen to represent the province at the national legislature. I take primary and direct responsibility for the vote-buying incident in Liaoning and the deterioration of the province's political ecosystem, Wang 67 said on camera. As a result, I should express remorse to the Central Party Authority, the cadres, and the people in Liaoning. The Central Commission for Discipline Inspection (CCDI), the party's anti-graft agency, started investigating Wang in March 2016 and referred his case to the state prosecutor's office for criminal investigation in August of 2016. No verdict was announced during the one-day trial at the Luoyang Intermediate People's Court. Wang is among 30 tigers or senior officials who have fallen since Communist Party General Secretary Xi Jinping launched the anti-graft campaign in late 2012. Another tiger, Chiu He, a former deputy party secretary in the southwestern province of Yunnan, was also featured in the documentary where he gave a brief account of his misdeeds. Starting with small and cheap presents, I began to accept big and expensive gifts. Later, I'm a person with flaws who slid into the abyss of crime, he said. Gradually, I became a person different from who I used to be, and I have nobody else but myself to blame. In March of 2015, Chiu, 60, was taken into custody by the anti-graft watchdog over gross violations of party discipline, a euphemism for corruption. He was sentenced to 14 and a half years in prison for taking bribes worth 24.34 million yuan in December. Huang Xingguo, the former mayor and acting party secretary of the northern port city of Tianjin from 2015 to 2016, thought he could get away with his wrongdoings, just as he had when CCDI inspectors visited the city late in 2014 and early 2015. The graftbusters returned for a second time in early 2016, and two months later, Huang was put under investigation for alleged corruption. The tactic of doing a follow-up inspection really worked well. My problem was that I began to do my own calculations as it served my personal interests after my ideals and beliefs were shaken, he said. But the fundamental problem at the core of the issue is that I no longer affiliated myself with the party in terms of code of conduct, and dropped my guard bit by bit until I ended up where I am now. Prosecutors in Shijiazhuang charged him with bribery earlier this month, although his trial is still pending. During the first round of inspections in Tianjin in late 2014 and 2015, Huang offered gifts in attempts to bribe CCDI inspectors in the hope of finding out what led the downfall of Wu Changshun, Tianjin's police chief. Wu admitted on camera to have led a double life by only displaying the sunny side of his character in public. But when I wasn't in public, I've done many things to violate the law and the party's disciplinary code because I thought I'd be lucky enough to get away with it. Wu said. Anti-corruption officials who detained Wu in July 2014 said the official was involved in all sorts of misdeeds that were already known to the public. Late in May, he was sentenced to death with a two-year reprieve for bribery and embezzlement involving more than 530 million yuan. Han Xianzong, a former deputy chairman of the provincial government advisory body in Anhui, also went on camera offering an account of his problems. I was invited to numerous banquets in the second half of 2013 and 2014 before my downfall, he said. Most of the time, I did not think it was a big deal, and I thought I could get away with it. In November, Han, 61, was sentenced to 16 years in prison for abuse of power and bribery involving more than 23 million yuan by a court in Nanping, a city in the eastern province of Fujian. 
from finance. Demand grows for Chinese homegrown virtual currencies. By Wu Yujian and Liu Xiao. In China, investors snapped up 2.6 billion yuan, $385 million worth of new virtual currencies during the first six months of this year, as digital money continues to gain popularity. A government-backed study finds. New unheard-of cryptocurrencies arrive in the market from time to time, adding to the long list that includes more familiar names such as Bitcoin and Ether. Some of these digital currencies are developed by companies to raise funds for new projects. A company offers an initial coin offering, an ICO, in which the issuer sells new coins to interested investors, just as an initial public offering provides new stock. In return, investors pay the issuer in cash or another virtual currency. Those coins can then be exchanged for rights to goods, services, or even company equity. Shanghai-based Energo Labs launched a new currency called TSL via an ICO on Monday that will enable peer-to-peer energy trading. Beijing-based Clipper Advisor, which automates asset management services, plans to launch a venture capital unit and issue Clipper coins, which give investors the rights of a limited partner. Digital currencies have been quick on the uptake, according to a study by the National Committee of Experts on Internet Financial Security Technology, a government-backed industry organization. Sixty-five ICOs were completed this year, the study said. Sixteen ICOs were concluded during the first two weeks of July, compared with twenty-seven in the whole month of June, nine in May, eight between January and April this year, and five from last year. More than 100,000 investors have participated in these ICOs. The actual number of ICOs and investors involved could be much higher, as the majority of ICO-related transactions takes place through private funds, which the study did not track. An industry executive told Caixin, "ICOs are not regulated by Chinese law. Issuers of virtual currencies can raise funds without a lengthy review process. In fact, all these issuers need is a white paper." Detailing the function of the coin they are issuing and a platform to launch new virtual currency. Over 90% of ICO issuances so far this year were purchased with other cryptocurrencies, putting the transactions outside of regulators' reach, according to the study. But the unregulated sector is also full of risk, the association warned. In addition to project failure and a high price volatility, many ICOs allegedly were used to scam investors. The study added, Yao Qian, who heads the Digital Currency Research Institute at the People's Bank of China, calls for a supervisory framework to be created as soon as possible. There is no way to stem the growing popularity of ICOs, Yao said. He suggested creating a safe space or so-called regulatory sandbox for issuers or other financial technology innovators to experiment with new ideas without a full-scale launch. Regulatory sandboxes also enable the development of innovations under controllable limits. From business and tech, Guizhou Maotai shares hit new high as investors get drunk on rosy outlook. By Li Yan, Zhang Lijuan, and Leng Cheng, shares of Guizhou Maotai Company hit a new high again Tuesday as investors are still giddy over rosy sales prospects of the fiery grain-based Baijiu. But market data show that some institutional investors had recently sold down Maotai shares and taken profits, signaling some fund managers might have found the stock overvalued. 
However, as more retail individual investors jump on the bandwagon, the stock continues to climb. Maotai's fortunes are boosted by a return of business drinking after years-long government crackdown on graft, analysts say. The company, whose sales are mostly domestic, posted a profit of 6.12 billion yuan, or 906 million U.S. dollars, in the first quarter, up 25.24% from a year ago. The Shanghai-listed manufacturer of Baijiu extended gains and closed up 0.03% at 477.96 yuan on Tuesday. Its market cap now stands at $88.9 billion, still the world's most valuable listed liquor maker. The stock has gained 127% since the beginning of 2016. The world's second most valuable liquor maker is still Diageo PLC, which owns the brands Johnny Walker and Guinness. It has a market cap of 73.68 billion U.S. dollars. According to financial information provider Wind, in the quarter ending March 31st, a total of 35.96 million Maotai shares were held by mutual funds, down 3.4% from the previous quarter ending December 31st. But the recent expansion of Maotai's shareholder base indicates that investor appetite has yet to wane. As of the end of March, Maotai had 680,000 shareholders, up sharply from 380,000 as of the end of December. A Taishin calculation also found that in the second quarter, 456 of the shareholders were investment funds, of which 150 funds acquired Maltai shares within the quarter. Most brokerages still assign Maltai a target price that is higher than even today's closing price. Bold calls include China International Capital Corp., which set Maltai at 613 yuan per share. Bearish estimates include Essence Securities Company, which targets Maltai at 452 yuan. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.